Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Well, tonight, very rational, but uh, very rough in many ways. We're going to be having a look at the other side of some, I suppose, upbeat news that we've had lately. We're talking to Magnus Haystick and then a little later to Russell Lamberti about growing concerns that South Africa is heading towards failed state status. Uh, We've seen, for instance, uh, the deterioration in municipalities and elsewhere. But what is really concerning to those who are watching the finances of the country is in February's budget, we were promised that there would be 265 billion rands taken off the public sector wage bill. Uh, That was desperately required to get the books starting to look a little bit like they were um, manageable. Well, the first year of the public wage uh, negotiations has shown not a decline, as has been promised, but in fact an increase in the number that is going to be spent there, which really makes the national budget look like uh, an exercise in futility. We'll also be going north of the border to Zimbabwe, where News that we've been reporting on the Business Power Hour recently has been upbeat. Well, John Robertson, uh, an ex-financial editor and merchant banker, tells us that we've been completely off the mark, and he'll give some very good reasons for that. Uh, A bit more uh, uplifting news, I guess, is uh, the interview that my colleague, Justin Rowe Roberts, is doing on the property sector after a big deal today between attack and equitus. And then, of course, we have our uh, partners in the UK, the Financial Times of London, bringing us up to date on all the international news. But before we get there, let's catch up on the local news and the markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, let's start with the news headlines here in South Africa. My colleague Nadia Swart. A shocking new report shows a tsunami of illegal tobacco is flooding South Africa as a result of authorities' failure to act on damning evidence of the world's biggest black market. The new report by market researchers IPSOS reveals that two in three shops in the hotspot provinces of Free State, Gauteng and the Western Cape sell illegal cigarettes and that illegal cigarettes are on sale in nearly half of all shops nationwide. Yusuf Abramji, founder of Tax Justice South Africa, warns that criminals are being allowed to loot the nation of billions of rands by making and selling tax-evading cigarettes. Steinhoff International, which is still grappling with the consequences of an accounting scandal that wiped out 200 billion rand in shareholder value, says Dublin-based Hamilton has withdrawn an appeal relating to voting procedure in its proposed settlement plan. Hamilton, a litigation funding company based in Ireland, which is seeking more than 16 billion rand on behalf of about 14,000 retail investors, asset managers and pension funds in SA. One of the world's fastest pace of deaths from COVID-19 infections hasn't been able to trounce widespread hesitancy over vaccines in South Africa. Deaths from the virus in the country rose 72% week on week as of Monday, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. 
and is the fifth fastest worldwide behind only Zimbabwe on the continent. Health experts have warned that a lack of communication coupled with anti-vaccine propaganda may be responsible for daily doses languishing almost 50% below President Cyril Ramaphosa's target. South African police plan to arrest former President Jacob Zuma by midnight on Wednesday in the absence of any further instruction from the Constitutional Court, Police Ministry spokeswoman Laranzu Temba said. Police Minister Becky Tsele sought clarity from the court about the arrest order after Zuma applied to a lower court to have it suspended. Spokeswoman Temba said that failing to do so would mean that the minister and the police commissioner would be in contempt of court and that the minister has indicated that he is not prepared to be charged for contempt of court. The judgment on the application to stay the arrest will be handed down on July 9th. Thanks, Nadia. Lots in the news today. Not a hell of a lot of it good. Uh, Perhaps Justin Rowe Roberts has got some better information for us from the markets. Better news, Alec, with the JSC All Share Index up more than 1% at 66,700. In the currency markets, the rand is flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 30 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 75 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 89 cents to the euro. Gold is steady at $1,801 an ounce. Kruger Rand is trading at approximately 27,000 Rand. Brent crude is lower at $75.50 a barrel. And Bitcoin is trading at around the 500,000 Rand mark. A great day for South African mining with commodities across the board strong, especially the precious group metals. In the news today, Equus, Equitus Property Fund announced the acquisition of a logistics property in the Waterfall Node. Less than a few hours after the announcement of the property, the group announced an accelerated book build for 500 million. Rand. Subsequent to the book build being oversubscribed, the capital raise was increased to 1 billion Rand at a 2% discount to the company's share price. And debt laden paper and packaging provider NAMPAC announced that their lenders were willing to extend their covenants due to improved operating conditions. That's interesting, the big book build where they start off with 500 million Rand and then uh, take it up to a billion Rand. It appears as though some people want to buy property shares or in particular equities. Demand for equity shares, that's for sure. It's interesting that there's been a couple of these accelerated book builds and it differs uh, among the property companies. Equitas has a low loan to value ratio and there's demand from the banks. And you are going to be talking a little later to the CEO. I'm looking forward to that. There's a lot of nitty-gritty in the acquisition that needs to be uncovered. Uh, so looking forward to that chat with Andrea Taverna Turisan. And time now to pick up with our partners in London at the Financial Times. Today is Wednesday, July 7th, and this is your FT News Briefing. A new EU report will add pressure to withhold funds from Hungary. The Pentagon just canceled a massive contract with Microsoft, and a feud between Saudi Arabia and the UAE is rattling oil markets. But first, the biggest Chinese IPO in years has turned into a giant mess. What are bankers saying about Didi Chuxing, and what's next for Chinese tech companies that want to list in the US? I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Who knew what and when? Those are the questions swirling around the mess that is the listing of Chinese company Didi Chuxing. The huge ride-hailing company went public on the New York Stock Exchange last week, and right after, Chinese officials removed the app from Chinese online stores. They said the company had violated privacy laws, and the move crushed Didi's stock price on Tuesday. 
By the end of trade, it was down about 20%. The FT's Joshua Franklin told me that bankers he spoke to say they were blindsided. They're dejected by this, really. I mean, this really was an enormous deal, one of the biggest IPOs of the year, one of the biggest uh, foreign IPOs of all time in New York. So it really should be um, you know, a banner transaction to work on. And for it to um, turn so sour so quickly, they're still wrapping their heads around it. And now you know, they'll be braced for, for potential litigation that might come out of this and just a lot of work that, uh, of looking into how this happened. Uh, from what I've heard from people who worked on the deal and what we've reported, they did their normal due diligence on, on transactions and were comfortable underwriting the deal. But obviously that, that didn't stop the deal from unraveling as, as quickly as it did. But Josh, you know, there, there were concerns about regulatory issues even before the IPO, you know, concerns that Chinese regulators could create some headwinds. Didn't the banks take that into account? Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why you saw uh, Diddy's valuation come in where it did, you know, just shy of 70 billion at the time of its IPO last week. There had been some chatter beforehand that it might be um, as high as 100 billion, but it, from some reporting that was, was done, it looked like there was some pushback from investors thinking that the regulatory uncertainty meant that 100 billion was a little bit high, so they, they settled on, on something a little bit lower. So clearly, there was a concern and a factor around the regulatory issues around um, Didi and the ride-hailing industry, but certainly the scale of, of what's happened was very unexpected. So what could this mean for, for other Chinese companies that want to list in the U.S.? Yeah, it's going to be one of the big stories to come out of this is what the fallout is for Chinese companies going public. It's been a real kind of on and off relationship, the, the backstory of Chinese companies going public in New York. There was a, a period coming out of the financial crisis where a lot of the, the growth was seen in China and you had a lot of Chinese companies going public through reverse mergers in New York. But then a lot of those kind of blew up and went out of business and Chinese IPOs were kind of outlawed on, on Wall Street. But then they came back in a big way with with Alibaba in 2014. And really that growth has just continued from there in the last kind of five, six years. We've just seen more and more Chinese companies looking to go public in the United States. And now with, uh, with what's happening with Didi, it really remains to be seen whether or not that trajectory is going to continue or whether or not now the biggest Chinese companies will be scared off from, from going public in the United States. So Josh, there are a lot of unhappy people right now. Uh, the bankers, of course, uh, and then there are Didi's biggest investors like SoftBank. SoftBank's shares tanked as well on this whole thing. So uh, who, in your opinion, is the biggest loser from all this? Uh, so far, I, I would have to say the company itself. I mean, uh, it really has kind of stepped on a lot of the momentum that it was able to, to generate out of an IPO. You know, an IPO really is a, a jumping off point for a company. It's not an end point. It's really the, the next phase of its, of its growth and of its corporate story. And to have its momentum checked as quickly as this is, is a big setback for the company. Joshua Franklin is the FT's U.S. banking editor. In the EU, calls to withhold funds from Hungary will likely grow louder. There's a report due out today that says that the government of Prime Minister Viktor Orban is failing to ensure transparent use of the funds, as well as their independent oversight. A group of EU lawmakers commissioned the report, which also cites Budapest's inadequate judicial independence. The report comes as the commission is facing increasing pressure to act against Budapest. A spokesperson for Hungary's government had no immediate comment. 
Oil prices are soaring because of a dispute among producers. OPEC and other oil producers abandoned a meeting earlier this week because they couldn't come to an agreement over increasing production. That led oil prices jumping to their highest level in at least three years. Now, at the heart of this is a feud between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. They can't agree over increasing production. But the FT Simeon Kerr says there are deeper tensions between the two oil producers who once had the strongest alliance in the Middle East. It started in 2019 when the UAE pulled its forces out of Yemen, leaving Saudi Arabia on its own. Since then, we've seen the embargo against Qatar ended, but that was very much a process led by Saudi Arabia. And then, of course, we've seen the UAE sign a normalization deal with Israel ahead of Saudi Arabia, which has raised some eyebrows. And most recently, we've seen a concerted campaign from Saudis to try and lure multinationals away from the UAE, particularly Dubai, saying that they've got to go and move to Riyadh or they'll lose out on big government contracts. It's certainly been a dramatic change from, you know, the close bromance that there was between Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Zayed of Abu Dhabi just a few years ago. Simeon Kerr is the FT's Gulf business correspondent. And finally, the U.S. Department of Defense has pulled the plug on a $10 billion computing contract awarded to Microsoft. Yesterday, the Pentagon said it was reversing its decision to hand over large parts of its data and communications to a single company. The Pentagon offered Microsoft the sensitive JEDI contract back in 2019. Now, shortly after it offered Microsoft the contract, Amazon, which had also put in a bid, sued It accused then-President Donald Trump of interfering in the process because of hostility towards Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. The Pentagon said it would start a new procurement process and seek proposals from Amazon and Microsoft and possibly other companies as well. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Wednesday. That means Magnus Haystack is our guest co-host of the Biz News Power Hour tonight. I've got some uh, really interesting ideas to throw at you, Magnus, not least starting off from the basis. You've done a lot of work on the parlous state of South Africa. Uh, We've discussed this at length many times. But what next? And I guess that's really the big question. You South African, I'm South African, everybody who's, or many people who are listening to this are South African as well. For us, it's, it's not really an option to up sticks and go and live in other parts of the world. So what do we do about this craziness that's happening here? We've got a former president who doesn't want to go to jail, even though, my goodness, he deserves to be there for the rest of his days. We've got municipalities that are imploding. We've got corruption that is is seeping out of the pores of governance in this country. We've got public finance, uh, which is just completely out of control. You might remember in the budget, Magnus, uh, Tito Mbouini, the finance minister, said they would cut 265 billion rand, cut mm. off the public sector wage bill. Now we've got a settlement which is actually going to add to the public sector wage bill. So what they were saying in Parliament in February was just nonsense. So all of these things, and it's pretty well documented, but the question has to be, what do we do about it? What do we, do we just throw our hands up and say, uh, create a little bubble or how do we address and fix this thing? 
You know, I don't know how much time you have, Alec, but that's a very big issue, and and we can talk for hours, if not weeks, and and it really is a very big concern to myself and and to to a lot of my clients, if not most of my clients, and 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 as like you, South African, my kids are here, all of them are here, my grandkids are here, but that doesn't mean you know we can just uh, accept what's going. There are a lot of things that individuals, families, or family units can do. To protect themselves, that is their first priority in my life, is to seriously look at their finances and look at what they're doing and, and how they react to what's happening. And, and this has started a long time ago where there were certain trends very evident 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it's already happened. A lot of people who have money have moved into security estates, golf estates. They have. That's the nature of human condition they go and form these bubbles. They go and buy their own security. They go and buy their own education from private schools, medical care, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's for the people who can afford it. And that, that trend… Yeah, it's like a parallel to the state. Not a parallel state, yes. but a parallel to the state. Now, Franz Cornier in his book and in his talks has been talking about this for a long time as well. So, 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 well, so people have been moving physically from less safe areas of the country, mostly up north. They've moved down to the Cape in, in enormous droves because they not really perceive it as safer and better. It really is. It is a better managed uh, uh, province of this country. So the, the north-south movement has been substantial and is accelerating in my view. But why the haven't third... you, Magnus? Why haven't you gone south? <clears throat> Well, I have uh, a, a property or two in the Cape, um, and, and, and it's well known that I have a property in Mauritius. Um, up to now, uh, for personal reasons, my daughter matriculated last year, and I was not going to move, and she was doing very well at school, academically, sport-wise, and I was not going to up upset her and disrupt her schooling to move down to the Cape. That is still on the agenda in the next year or two, but as you well personal, know, yeah, personal, personal, uh, personal circumstances. Mm -hmm. I have, it isn't, mm, it yeah, isn't I, because you don't want to, or you don't, you're not saying one thing and then doing something different. You, you are, we all have personal circumstances. Correct. So now it's becoming a, a real decision that my wife and I have to make. Do we sell up north and then move down to the south? The problem is the property market in, 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 in Johannesburg, the greater Johannesburg is is, is very, very uh, quiet and, in fact, quite dead. And, you know, it's not a great time to be selling. So, yes, in the next year or 12 months, 18 months, I will be seriously considering selling and, and, and moving down to the Cape. As an alternative, um, I do want to spend some time in Mauritius um, building up my businesses there. And even spend some time in Europe, uh, three months in Holland or three months in the UK. But not everybody is as fortunate as I am. Now you come to the average South African family who's got uh, a, a limited portfolio, maybe one or two properties, a pension fund, and some discretionary investments. And that's where, and I've sent you some stats on the relative performance of the JSC versus offshore and I can send you mountains of stats, that's where the individual needs to step in and start making decisions in terms of creating an offshore nest egg, which has protected you over the last 10 years, 
and perhaps even liquidating some of your assets in South Africa, which is a drag on your performance. We have a lot of clients who, are, who sit across the table from us and they say, Magnus, I am asset rich, but I've got no cash. They've got properties, they've got maybe a farm, or they've got, but they don't have money. Their pension funds have also not done extremely well the last five to 10 years. So they're starting to run into a real problem. And people need to start making decisions and start looking a little bit broader when it comes to building an investment portfolio. And, and you need to start thinking as a global citizen, an international citizen, because who knows where this can all end. Three or four years ago, we were just talking, you know, fast and loose about the, the, the plotline that's falling apart. Now it's become a major, major economic catastrophe. We can quantify it. It's billions and billions of rands. It is now on our doorstep. I think our biggest issue to come still, in my view, is the, the collapse of our public finances. We've got very lucky. Um, your guest last night, Stephen Nathan, said we got the get-out-of-jail card because the commodity cycle spiked up last year and it attracted a lot of revenue. But with that, we can plaster over a lot of the gaps in our budget system. That cycle is already turning, and I don't think it will be repeated. So the, 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 the budget deficit is going to come back to be a major problem. You and I are going to talk about it more often in the future. Uh, the tax base is just disappearing. It's melting away. There's just, and at some point, reality is going to catch up with all the polit political promises. And it's the poor old taxpayer is going to pay more taxes. Our budget deficit is going to blow through the roof, or it could blow through the roof, and there could be further downgrades and defaults. That's the economic scenario. I know it's a bad news story, but that is the reality that we are living with. You, when you just unpack that a little bit, uh, you talk now about a macro sense. In other words, the tax for the country as a whole. But last week we were talking about the, the very real issue of rates in municipalities being increases. I, I, I don't know what your property values are, but I was having a look at mine the other day and it's at least 25% above the market value of my property. So I'm paying Rates and taxes based on an inflated value. I'm pretty sure that the city of Johannesburg or Santon, whichever one it, it falls under, is not going to reduce those rates and taxes in the next year because they need more money. So they'll bump that one up as well. So you're getting this disconnect with reality at a, at a macro level, uh, national treasury, uh, income taxes, corporate taxes, PAYE, etc., and also at a municipal level where you're – your domestic or your municipal rates and taxes are just accelerating. But the question really in all of this is, what do you do about it and can you change it? Well, first of all, um, most taxpayers feel powerless. They can't control it. They, they, they can't vote out the ANC-controlled municipalities. And that's the starting point is local government elections where I think we could see some surprises and that would be one step. But in certain areas of the country, the ANC is so dominant, it's not going to change. And as that article I explained last week, I mean, it's, it's, it's affecting listed property, unlisted property, small towns, big towns. There's just a massive evaporation of money taking place. On a personal level, what's happening to you and to me and to my neighbor is happening all around the country. And everybody, 
most people are sitting at night or the end of the week or month, they're saying, I don't have cash. I do not have disposable income to go and spend uh, for luxury items. And you can see it in a wide variety, a variety of places. You look at the Discovery um, membership uh, that's dropped by 30%. In, in three years, especially the, the high-end schemes, everybody is downgrading. People are downgrading their cars. People are driving their cars for longer. They're downgrading um, their schooling. We now hear about private schools that are shrinking because people cannot afford those extravagant fees for schooling. They're taking kids to cheaper schools and to even private uh, government schools. I say you've got cars, schooling, medical People are traveling less. Our motor car sales, if you compare it to five years or 10 years ago, are actually 50% lower than 10 years ago. New car That's sales. That's extraordinary, yeah. That shows the bottom line is, and there's a piece in another website, Business Tech, this morning, which I 100% agree with. Middle class is being, is being wiped out. Our middle class is very quickly moving down to upper, lower class in the sense that there's not much money left over. Why? Taxes, rates and taxes, and all kinds of taxes have shot through the roof. Investment returns in SA have been pedestrian or sideways, and in fact down in many cases. Salary and wages have not kept pace with inflation, and now we have now we are at crunch time. There's just not enough money. People are starting to drag down on their savings. Um, they are taking more debt just to get to the end of the month. So that, together with the low economic growth for the last 10 years, has really, really shrunk the middle class fairly dramatically. And even the rich, the rich or the so-called rich, especially if they are asset rich with lots of property and farms and a wine farm or two, I'm hearing talk about people seriously going under because of, first of all, the, the, the economic stagnation leading up to the COVID and then you have the COVID Mm. And people are, are people are going bankrupt. Uh, they're just losing their assets. There's there's no denying anymore. But what are you saying to the middle class or the 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 previously rich, uh, who your clients who come to you and and ask for your advice, and they can't sell their assets, or do you just say take what you can get from your house up north and perhaps move south because it is better governed down there? What is your advice to them, Magnus? You know. I can't give you one rule that applies to everybody, you know, but it's surprising how some people are perhaps they're not that informed and they tend to stick to the old formulas that have created the wealth and they refuse to change their mindset. No, 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 no. I must not sell because the property guys are telling me the upturn is coming. So they hang on and they hang on and they hang on and it just gets worse and worse. The same with a badly performing stock market portfolio or a local asset portfolio. I mean, every time you open up the media, someone is saying, now's the upturn, the, the, our stocks are cheap. So people have been brainwashed and they're actually petrified. They, they, they're so terrified to make a mistake because there's this overwhelming marketing machine out there. And it's a very powerful marketing machine from the local asset managers who can spend considerable amounts of money and the one message that they're pumping out is, don't sell, wrong time. Offshore markets are expensive. And they've been wrong for 10 years. And I've got a whole file here. I actually call it my forecast file. Year mm -hmm. after year, I file all these forecasts. And 
nobody is holding them to account for getting it horribly wrong. And he has a very important point. Asset managers, asset managers, fund managers, call it what you like, are not investment advisors. They have no consequences that comes back to them if they get it wrong. It's the advisor who has a different relationship with the client who actually needs to be concerned about the outcome and what happens to that particular client. So a fund manager can say, oh, sorry, I made a mistake. Tough luck. Those are the markets. I cannot take that position, and, and I'm deeply, deeply concerned about so many people who still take bad advice, which is biased towards supporting a badly performing economy, and it just doesn't make sense to me. Well, I was intrigued to see that one of the country's top economists, Russell Lamberti, is joining Sakalicha, which is a uh, an organization that hasn't been around a long time. Russell, I've heard of the Afrikaans Handels Institute, for instance, which has uh, morphed into a, a lobby group for small business. There, there are various other uh, organizations, AfriForum is one, but Sakalicha does seem to be making some great strides. And now with your appointment, my goodness, that's quite a coup for them. Oh, thanks, Alex. Yeah, it's, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity. Sakalicha has been around a bit longer than people think. They had a name change uh, two or three years ago uh, where they changed from Afri Saka to, to Sakalicha. Um, they just had a bit of a rebranding kind of exercise there. So they, they have been around a bit longer. Um, you know, got, got probably around 12,000 members ranging from, you know, very small sole proprietor, small businesses to, to some fairly large, large members. I'm joining in September and joining a very capable team there. Pete LaRue, who leads the team there, is, is excellent. And um, some of the, the people I'm going to be working with um, are, are very, very good. So, you know, I'm looking forward to it's It's a pivot for me. It's a new challenge. I've been steeped in... Uh, in macro analysis for, for institutional investors and for professional investors for, for a long time now. I'll still be doing a little bit of that on the side. But, um, yeah, my main gig now is really, I suppose, trying to help uh, create a better operating environment in what has become, you know, an extremely difficult place to do business, Alec. To move from econometrics, which is, as you say, more of a macro, uh, an ETM, uh, where you are now, more of a macro approach, to an activism, uh, certainly Saka Licha uh, suggests to me that it is more of an activist kind of uh, organization. Is is a, I mean, pivot is a word that many people use, but it's it's quite a radical change. Yeah, and I suppose I suppose activism is one way you could describe it. Another way is advocacy. Um, uh, that might just be semantics. I think. Um, look, I've always I've always had had you know. I've always developed that that side of me, Alec, which which you know, there's there's describing how the world is, and, you know, that's what you got to do for your clients, um, and then there's thinking about how the world ought to be or or, or could be, um, and I think you know we we're we're at a place in our country's trajectory in our country's history where uh, things are are coming to to a point of potential you know real crisis. And I think I can lend my shoulder to the wheel a little bit in 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 helping steer things back, you know, to a better course. I, you know, I don't have delusions of grandeur as to what's achievable, but I think if 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 enough of us um, put our heads down and and uh, put our thinking caps on and you know get our get our hands a bit dirty on on trying to 
fix this mess that we find ourselves in, <clears throat> we might have a chance of actually coming out the other side with something to show for it. So, so yes, it, it, it is quite a, it is quite a pivot for me and quite a change. Um, but, you know, I'm looking forward to, to applying the skills that I've acquired over the last, you know, you know, 15 odd years, 16 years, uh, in, in my roles very strongly in macro, um, to really keeping that analytical, uh, dimension going. Sarkalicha is going to benefit substantially from that, but, but really how that gets then applied, um, in, in the real world. And, you know, Sarkalicha is doing some, some great stuff when it comes to, to challenging the state around, uh, very unfair and onerous BEE regulations, um, challenging municipal governments to be, uh, to be more honest um, and to and to be run more efficiently, and um, these things I think have tremendous benefit, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. So, but as I say, I'm not uh, I'm not going to be ditching the macro stuff entirely. Going to be retaining some some key select clients on, on you know on on the side, and I think having having both of those roles in play will be will be a nice balance for me, and I'm I'm really looking forward to the opportunity. Highly articulate, Pete Leroux, uh, the uh, head of Sakalecha. And last time he was on this program, we were talking about challenging uh, through the legal routes. In other words, going to the courts and so on. Are you going to be playing a role there as well? I'll play, I will play some role there. I mean, it's certainly not my, my core strength, but more and more the, the cases that are either being brought directly by Sarkalicha or in which they will choose to become a friend of the court. Um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I will have a role. Um, what's needed often is is very sound economic argument, um, putting together uh, a good economic uh, data and, and evidence for a particular position. It's it's not always the sway the swaying position or the position that that judges necessarily like to get involved with, um, but certainly so so I don't necessarily see the the legal side as being uh, uh, necessarily core to what I do. Although although I think it will pull me in, um, you know, fairly substantially as we as we try and bolster our arguments. Um, and I think if you try and bolster arguments from a few angles, that can only that can only help. So I will play a, a kind of support role in, in in that sense. It is interesting, though, that we are in a constitutional democracy, and we're seeing increasingly, for instance, from China, how Beijing is now attacking its uh, its companies, effectively companies yeah. that have listed offshore. And there's no right of recourse for those companies. Uh, Didi mm. uh, Global being the most recent example of it. However, in South Africa, being a constitutional democracy, we do have the court of laws that we, uh, the courts of law that we can go to if you're a corporate entity or in fact any entity in this country and you feel that some others or, uh, in this case, government is, um, overstepping the mark, overstepping its power, et cetera. Uh, how much is there to be done? You mentioned right in the beginning, you spoke about the mess that South Africa is in. Uh, how deep is it, and is it extractable? Yeah, look, tough, tough question. I mean, short answer is it's it, it is very deep. Um, you know, if we look at things right now, we've had we've had probably at least a year, or maybe maybe about nine months of of kind of a sugar high recovery um, off the back of what's been you know, tremendous global stimulus, huge money pumping by central banks, very low rates 
big fiscal interventions that has created this, this sugar high. South Africa has experienced some of that, but um, but at a structural level, <clears throat> uh, SA is is in a place where it it really isn't growing and is probably you know properly measured in a kind of uh, prolonged prolonged recession. Um, the the Reserve Bank's uh, business cycle indicator shows us in a downturn since about 2013. So just just an absolute record on the, in the history books uh, in terms of South African uh, uh, business cycle stuff. So so very little dynamism in the South African economy, stifled by by uh, you know poor regulations, over regulation, probably most importantly just just state incapacity, um, and 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 really. I think an advanced stage of state failure. Now that I think that creates two two imperatives. The one is to to protect yourself against that state failure um, in various ways. I think using the courts is one strategy. I don't think it's it's the be all and end all strategy, um, but certainly to the extent that the courts can can help you, to the extent that there's independent courts that that make sound, sensible, rational judgments. <clears throat> One can and should use that avenue. Um, I think that there are other practical ways um, that one can explore to, to as uh, as we say at Sakhlicha, uh, to to state proof oneself. Um, and and uh, yes, and then and then of course, so, so there's a defensive posture in terms of state failure, and then there's kind of getting on the front foot and becoming proactive in in stepping into realms of, um, let's say. Uh, a lapsed governance where where there's certain pockets of the country that are really just essentially ungoverned um and and to somehow uh take up the mantle and start making some of these places work uh, it's not easy it's not cheap and it comes with uh with various risks not least of which is a kind of opposition from the state because even though they might lapse uh, in certain areas, they don't necessarily like people coming in and, and taking over. But you know, this does start to push towards basic kind of human rights uh, issues, basic uh, uh, kind of constitutional uh, rights. If if you don't have water um, in a town, I mean that's a that's that's literally a life and death situation. Um, you know, people need to be able to go and provide provide those services, get them working again. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of this is really coming to a head. Um, and I think there's a there's a very large uh, uh, sort of uh, base of support um, and legitimization of where there is completely lapsed and failed governance um, for, for businesses, for local communities to, to kind of increasingly move into that space. It, it's, it's simply, a, as I say, a matter of life and death for many people. Have we hit rock bottom in South Africa? The fact that people like you and uh, we are seeing more and more uh, intelligent South Africans deciding to put, as you described it, their shoulders to the wheel to try and fix things rather than the easy route, which is immigration. Uh, are we at a rock bottom or uh, is that the reason why or is there another reason why you are prepared to stick around and and fight for what you believe in. Look, I, I think it's a brave call to say we're at rock bottom. I, I think that uh, just purely from what's already baked into the cake, uh, Alec, fr- from what's gone before us in the, in the previous 
certainly 10 years and if really 15 to 20 years but really the last the last 10 the, the decay in the last you know 10 to 12 years has been been pretty substantial um and and you know the lagged effect of of those things that are already baked into the cake i, I think are, are still to come through so so i'd be surprised if <clears throat> if if uh it it doesn't get a bit worse uh, yet um, and we know really from from global experience that things can get a lot worse um, you know if our political class uh, really decides to close ranks um, double down and get get extremely stubborn on their you know on their, their grip on on the country and on the economy and if they start turning uh, particularly kind of you know dirigiste and and malicious um things can things can fall substantially further i think in many ways um my move is is less to to try and you know restore uh you know anc policy um and really i think to 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 try and uh help sakelicher develop for their for, for their members for their supporters and for the broader business community um alternatives to what I see as in some realms uh, an inevitable state state failure so I, I don't I don't think um, you know I don't think a failed state is is, is, a, is a future tense um, idea I think we're living in it right now it's not it's not a singular event it's not a, a you know you don't wake up one morning and, and and the state has failed we're in an advanced uh, period of state failure and um, I see this as, a, as an incredibly exciting and, and very uh, uh, daunting as well uh, challenge to, to, in the midst of that, to try and latch onto opportunity um, and actually see if we can build something really good out of, out of that lapsed governance, out of that, 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 that failed governance. Um, it doesn't mean that every department and every area of the state has failed or is failing. Uh, we luckily still have one or two areas that that function. Probably the most importantly is the is the Reserve Bank at this point, which continues to maintain a, a fairly sensible policy, and the rand continues to hold up. Um, but yeah, so so I think I think it's actually it's actually an acknowledgement, Alec, that that things are 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 bad enough that um, we've got to start thinking about alternatives uh, beyond the conventional paradigm. And that's intellectually exciting. Um, it's it's professionally going to be very interesting, um, and there's no guarantees of success here. So there's risk involved as well. But uh, you know, I think it all stems from a fundamental love of of the country, and uh, and and a place that that I think most of us at some level feels feels worth fighting for. We've had some interesting discussions about Zimbabwe lately. We had the Zimbabwean Minister of Finance, who was giving us a very upbeat picture of what's happening in the country. And Eddie Cross, a former member of the official opposition in Zimbabwe, the MDC, was also pretty upbeat. But there are two sides to every story. And it's a warm welcome now to John Robertson. John, where are we talking to you from? I'm in Harare. And what is it that you do? I'm retired now for uh, more than 25 years, but I did work for a merchant bank, first merchant bank in Harare. And before that, I was financial editor on the Rhodesia Herald, 
I gave up that job when independence came in 1980 because Robert Mugabe said he intended to take over the media as soon as he got into office. So I thought that would be a good time to leave the media. Well, we have been referred to you as a straight talker and an independent thinker and somebody who would be giving us the other side to the generally optimistic story that is being propagated. How are you reading the economic recovery, or is there one? There has been some improvement, but recovery, I'm afraid, is still some distance away, mainly because the government is still refusing to fix what they broke. Um, If I can explain that briefly, they took land off the market, and at that time the land had been the principal form of collateral that supported applications for bank loans, especially for the farmers. But because the farmers were able to finance their activities, the manufacturing sector benefited enormously from having dependable supplies of agricultural raw materials that would support all the food industries, the textile industries, the paper industry, the timber, and so forth. So it is a a very important linkage between agriculture and manufacturing. And then a further important linkage into the export sector because a great many of our manufactured consumer goods were quite good enough to export and earn money for the country. Now, when the land was taken off the market, the link between the farmers and the banks was broken. And that breakage is still there. Government is trying to take over by saying, well, you can borrow money from the government or the government is going to try and guarantee loans that the banks are being asked to give to people who no longer have title to their land, but are on a lease agreement, which to the banks is very, very tenuous and very difficult to work with, especially if you have to recover money from a defaulting borrower. So the banks are very reluctant to lend to the farming community. As a result, We have been dependent on importing food for the last 20, 23 years. This year, because of an exceptional rainfall season, it's possible that we might feed the nation with locally grown food. But uh, there's no reason to hope that we're going to have exceptional rains yet again in the coming years. So we'll be back to importing food because the farmers cannot function under circumstances that prevent them from obtaining the money they need. So there's a structural issue that hasn't been addressed. Am I reading you correctly? Well, that's that's a good way to put it. But it's very much more a political issue because the government seems to feel that if people gain access to title to their land, they'll be less easily manipulated, less easily pushed around. And the government doesn't want to empower the population to the extent that property rights would achieve. So empowerment is considered by the government to be something to be cautious about and something to avoid. And as a result, the government's got a whole policy of central planning now, something which does not get debated because nobody seems to want to pick up the subject. But the whole government philosophy these days seems to be that we must live in a command economy and the commands have got to come from government because government has got to portray itself as being the central source of 
power or an authority for every productive sector. They don't see themselves there as to facilitate the requirements of the productive sectors. They see themselves as having to be the productive sector for the economy. And uh, I feel that this is taking us down the wrong road. And every other country in the world that has tried this has failed. And I don't see any reason why we might succeed. John, what we're hearing is that the politicians or the ZANU-PF politicians are traveling the world and giving a good story, one that investors, foreign investors, are at least listening to, whereas previously they outright rejected. Are you saying that the story that they're telling is not entirely the truth? And, and this is important because Zimbabwe, like any other developing country, needs foreign investment to get going again. Yes, well, you, you're correct in saying that they're going around the world telling the story. And, of course, they can say that things are better. That's because things were considerably worse before, but they haven't been fixed. They remain difficult. We've still got one of the highest inflation rates in the world, even though it's much less than it was. Uh, we've got a very unstable exchange rate. It's better than it was. And most of the things that the government can talk about are things that are yet to come. So there are promises, and there's lots of promises about things that are going to be built, new investments that are going to come in. A great many of them are Chinese, and uh, that is sometimes a cause of more, for more concern than, than pleasure. But I'm sure that a lot of these investments will come in. We almost certainly will redevelop our ability to produce steel, for instance, but as a result of a Chinese investment. We have so many different ways of improving further our services sector, electricity, transport, and so forth. And so there are enormously better prospects than there were, but it would still be wrong to say that we have actually sorted out the base upon which we are to build this new economy. That base, I would argue, is still missing. And uh, you mentioned that investors are listening, but they're not coming. They're not actually coming. The amount of foreign direct investment inflows, we are one of the worst performers in Africa, and that's where we remain. A great many of the investors who have come in to say, yes, we are interested in doing a project, and then they go into the process of getting project approvals and discover they've got to work through a couple of dozen separate agencies in government, each of which says you must get from us a permit or a license or some kind of approval before you can go to the next one to get license from them. So it is a seriously controlled environmental investment environment, which is proving very difficult to work with. So although a lot of the projects are finally approved and we're expecting an inflow of 500 million or so for this or that project, it never happens. The people don't actually come. They don't follow through having even obtain their license, they're still saying, well, we're still waiting to see what will happen next. And now that we've got our approval or our license, we're still thinking. And so we've had very little actual inflow. We've had lots of inquiries, but the actual inflows have made not the slightest difference to our balance of payments. I'm Justin Rowe Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Andre Taverna Tirasan. Chief Executive of Equitas REIT Limited, the best performing real estate investment trust on the JSC over the last five years. 
Andrea, before we get into the crux of the latest acquisition of the Equitas Group, can you unpack what property sectors Equitas is invested in and how the group has managed to avoid the listed property meltdown over the last few years? Um, well, I mean, Equitas is a, is a very sort of singularly focused um, on the logistics warehousing sector of the, the real estate uh, market. We've, um, we came to market in 2014 with a clear vision. We've stuck to our knitting, if you like. We do have a few assets that are not strictly 100% logistics, but are industrial in nature. Uh, the idea, though, is to, is to ensure that we remain very logistics focused. We went into the UK in 2016 to give us a bit of a rand hedge. We've benefited massively but from the UK market also with the, the demand drivers in, in logistics as a consequence of e-commerce going from about 19% of total retail sale, sales pre-COVID and sitting probably in the, in, the, in the low 30s at the moment. So, you know, South Africa has really been driven more by supply chain optimization and we've been at the forefront of that uh, and we've built up, you know, a reputation uh, where, where our clients have tended to, to do repeat business with us. And like anything in any business, repeat business often is the cheapest business and the most lucrative business. And, uh, yeah, so we benefited from all, all of the above, effectively. On to the acquisition, Attack, the other listed property company disposing of a portion of its interests, has been struggling with debt issues, among other factors such as vacancies and rental collections as a result of being exposed to retail, office and hospitality. Was this an opportunistic acquisition from an equitous perspective? You know, we, we've done a transaction with the Attack um, team before, so we already own um, seven or eight assets in the Waterfall Precinct. Um, we've, we, we, we own them in an 80-20 joint venture partnership for a few years, and then we bought the remaining 20% out of those assets from the partnership. We've maintained fantastically positive relationships with, you know, I mean, Attack has gone through a few COs in recent years, from Mornay Vulcan to Melt and, and, and now to Jackie. Uh, and we've 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 had fantastic relationships with them over the years. We've we've kept engaging and talking to them. Um, an opportunity arose where you know they were looking uh, to to uh, liquidate some assets, and and we were able in a very quick space of time to to give them the necessary guarantees that we could do the deal, and and and, and hence uh, you know provide them with the with the liquidity that they that they they're looking for. And and the, the the assets sort of meet our criteria, you know. They're 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 modern logistics assets in great locations, led to fantastic covenants, uh, and uh, on long dated leases. So, you know that that kind of ticks, you know, the Equitas box, if you like. Could you explain the details of the acquisition? As it's not as simple as Equitas purchasing the buildings, shaking hands with the attack management, and parting ways. Mm. No, we basically we've got an undivided share, so. Effectively, it's a it's a it's a way of owning property, which is I think fairly unique to South Africa. I know you can't do it in the UK, uh, but but effectively we own fifty percent of each of the three properties. Um, uh, well, two of them are already built and and, and obviously being in operation. We own fifty percent, but the fifty percent we own we own a hundred percent of. If you understand what I'm saying, so it's very quirky. So so when we we go to and and get debt against our fifty percent. 
the bank has no recourse to the other 50%, which is a tax and vice versa. So we, we only look after our 50% portion. And then, you know, the final quirk in the whole thing is that one of the buildings is currently being built at the moment. And that's the building that Cotton On will be moving into next year. And, and we'll be co-developing it with, with the attack team, which also shows, you know, the level of maturity that the two two senior senior management teams have and respect that they have for each other. That 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 it was a it was a simple solution that we would co-develop it and and you know which 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 is great and you know when you when you deal with with like-minded you know forward-thinking people it, it makes business significantly easier. And as you mentioned earlier, the waterfall node is quickly becoming another business hub in the Highfeld region, a convenient interlink between Johannesburg and Pretoria. Property valuations are under pressure all over, but do you think the growth in this node will sustain, if not increase? property valuations in the next few years? Well, we, we certainly believe that, yes. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, so I, I can't guarantee you that. Uh, but but we certainly believe that. I mean, we think as a node, you know, the original visionaries um, from the, the Atterbury crowd that put the whole scheme together, uh, I mean, I think you cannot but be impressed when you drive through the node and, and, and see the, the, the level of infrastructure, the quality of of everything that's been done there, from the office node to the residential node to the the retail node, and 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 and, and the industrial node surely is is also in the same in the same league. So, yeah, very impressed with with the product, very impressed with the location, um, and and what we find also, you know, we as I said, we already have a few assets in the area, and 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 we obviously communicate with our tenants there, and and all our tenants are extremely happy in the node. Equitas announced an accelerated book build this morning was originally 500 million because of demand increased to 1 billion. The group is one of, if not the lowest loan to value ratios in the listed property sector. When debt funding is the cheapest it's been in decades, why would you choose to dilute shareholders? We have a, we have a really good pipeline. You know, um, we want to keep our balance sheet healthy and, the other thing about our business is that one needs to sort of take cognizance of is that, you know, we don't tend to do 20 and 30 million rand deals. You know, we, we do 400 or a billion rand deals at a time. Um, you know, we've got we've got the Hermes building, which will be completed next year in February. I mean, that's going to be a hundred million pound deal, which is two billion rand, one one property. Uh, we've got Amazon. It's going to be completed next month in Peterborough in, in the UK. Um, you know that's a that's a fifty million pound building. You know it's um, that's a billion rand. You know so um, we certainly put the money to good use. You know we 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 we've, we we're developing best in class warehouses. Uh, we've got fantastic covenants in them, fantastic organisations, fantastic businesses, um, and and we have long dated leases which 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 um, reward us and reward our shareholders. Um, commensurately, you know, we're not here. Uh, we, we, we're not a business that's going to make, you know, 100% returns in a year. We're a business that is a, a steady eddy. We want to be as boring as possibly we, we can be, uh, you know, keep on adding the one brick at a time, building from the bottom up. I think we've done it successfully in the last seven years, you know, building the portfolio to where it is. And 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 I think, you know, the the, the, the level of support we got from shareholders today, I think, really talks to that and, and magnifies magnifies what we've done as a management team and as a team in general. And and we have no no intention of doing anything differently going forward. You know, we the market is definitely in our favor and, and as they say, make hay while the sun shines.
And that was the Biz News Power Hour from our team here in Johannesburg. Until the next time, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.